Hello and welcome to Foundling Founds Series 2, Episode 1. Wow, it's amazing to be back. Last series we were joined by some incredible guests such as Mo Jamil, Dave Linton from Madluck, Debbie Bright and some amazing care leavers. To kick off Series 2, I'd like to introduce our very special guest host, Rebecca Jones. Hello, on today's show we are joined by journalist, activist, writer, podcaster and host, our very own Jules Brown. But first of all, the conversation in this episode includes mental health, suicide, homelessness and offending that some listeners may find triggering. All right. Hi, Jules. Um, You usually start off this podcast by asking people to introduce themselves and then telling us a bit about their background in care. So now it's your turn. Well, hey, guys. It's so great to be back for series two. Um, I'm Jules Brown, host of Foundling Founds and care care experience advocate for all those in care, no matter their background. Um, My experience of the care system, well, I've been in care since I was a young teen and gone through the system in many different ways, lived in very many forms of placements and everything else. Now I'm a care leaver myself and have the perfect opportunity to change the narratives, perceptions of those in care, as well as have a insight into the policies that are being produced and the way the system is changing, especially had the care review this year, which we spoke about in series one, but we're really going to talk about in series two. And yeah, I'm just really glad to be back. And this time the tables have turned and I'm the one being interviewed. So this is going to be fun. And thank you, Rebecca, for being in as host. So you just said um, that um, what you do to advocate is to change people's perceptions of care um, and change yeah. the narrative that's surrounding it. So what do you think the stigma is at the moment? Like, what would you like to change most? You see, the stigma around those in care is so wide and varied. It's ridiculous. And I guess we've seen it recently in you know, the Euros final matches with racism and someone like not being able to score a goal, for example, the perceptions and stigma still around with race and ethnicity and gender and sexuality being in care. There's so many stigmas out there, but for those in care specifically, it's always around the fact that they're never going to achieve much in life or they're troublemakers or they're attached to drugs and alcohol or they're criminals or they're going to end up homeless or they're not going to ever get a job and they're not going to do well in education. And do you know what? The stigma comes from so many different people as well. They come from teachers. They come from social workers at times. It comes from sometimes youth engagement workers or the public and the government themselves, you know. Youth engagement workers? (laughs) Not you. (laughs) (laughs) But the government themselves as well. You know, I, I did a corporate parenting board meeting back in May where a young girl who was presenting some evidence to the corporate parenting board said when the government were talking about vulnerable children, she felt like that was another stigma for those in care at the time because that's who they were specifically talking about, children who had social workers or who were in care or those that were in the vulnerable category and their parents were vulnerable or key workers. But that's another stigma. And we find this so often within the care system and those who don't understand the care system. It's a miseducation, miscommunication and a misunderstanding completely of those in care, their individuality and where they're going to go in life. And 
one thing I always believe is don't let anybody tell you your destiny in life because every care experienced young person has the same talent, drive and determination as your normal child living in a family environment. I agree. Couldn't agree more. But there will be some people that think that that stigma doesn't come from nowhere. And actually, there's some truth in that. But whose fault is that? That's my main question. If, if it is that... Um, care experienced people can't achieve as much as people who aren't care experienced then there's got to be a reason for that and that reason can only be systemic failure like why haven't they been educated properly like where where does all this come from you know the re firstly i want to touch on we had the case for change review recently and some just statistics uh placed in that is around funding so for example we talk about the funding in 2012 to 2013 the whole of the care system had 10.1 billion pounds as funding, right? And then we look at 2019 to 2020, it's only 10.5 billion. So it hasn't gone up a lot, okay? It, it Compared to other areas where the government are funding, like education and, you know, science and all of these areas and like health and all of that, that they benefit, like fund. This is one of the poorest funded areas, you know? And it also comes down to a lack of, like you say, it's a systemic failure within schools and teaching because it's almost, I remember this feeling when I went into care, for example, one day I wasn't a child in care, the next day I went in school as a child in care and it's almost like the teachers couldn't be bothered. It was an automatic switch off for them. And the systemic failures in just education, for example, let's take that because that affects so many areas of a young person's life and into adulthood. If a teacher, for example, has a view that all care experienced young people don't want to learn or they're troubled or they're going to cause trouble because of either previous experiences or what they've heard, it then has an impact on that child's education and what they receive from those, those teachers. Now, a child then it begins to feel voiceless and powerless. But then we also take education as an example. Most young people in care move a lot in placements. So that has an impact on their education because they end up moving school all the time. And then what happens then is they're not getting the same quality of education as your average child who lives at home with their family who is at that same school for maybe three, four years or throughout the whole schooling, you know what I mean? Yeah. So the problem is that it's not just one thing. It is like you say, complete systemic failure, one thing after another. If the placements are changing all the time, schools are changing all the time, then that child has to rebuild those relationships with friends and teachers and all the professionals and everything that comes with that. And then they have to kind of settle in school and then they end up being moved again and moved again. It's just that constant cycle. And then you get teachers, like I previously just said, that really have that one mindset on those in care. And then you have the fact that your care life is brought into school. So it almost makes it a, a place where you can't feel free and you can't learn because everything of your home life is being brought into your educational setting. If we look at looked after children reviews, for example, they are tend to be done in school. Now, a school is where a child wants to learn, not want to talk about their personal life. And it's only because it's convenient for professionals to be there that then it affects the young person's own self-esteem and how they feel about education and that school setting themselves. And like I said, it's government funding. We look at the way the government have underfunded this area for so long that of course there's gonna be systemic failures because there's not the money to put in place private tutors or tutors to come in and work with those young people. 
the placements aren't long enough. You know, there's not enough foster carers. There's not enough training in place. And there's so many failures that the government need to answer in this care review. And I hope they do answer them. And I hope people and organisations hold their questions hard and make sure that they get the answers that they deserve. Because all young people in care deserve these answers. And all the people that work in the profession deserve the answers too. Because it's not just social, you know, it's not social workers causing these problems. It's the policies put in place higher up. And I know a lot of youth engagement workers, social workers, and those that engage with young people in care that are frustrated by this as well and want the same answers that those in care do. So I hope that Josh McAllister and his team who are working on the care review and the government themselves answer the questions that need to be answered. Yeah. Wow. I mean, there's no more to add to that, really. Um, but I do also think of it um, honing it down on the personal child, on the individual child and how it impacts them. So there's two things that it makes me think of. One is is about where that judgment starts, where the stigma starts. I know that we've talked about before in previous episodes about everyone, as a child, everyone you come to meet that's an adult knows everything that's ever happened to you from the biggest trauma to the smallest thing because they've read your file. So even before they've ever got a chance to know you, um, you've been prejudged on on that and that especially in a school setting before you even walk into the classroom to be educated you're known that and then you're known as that and that's that's a stigma in itself because it's from that file that a teacher might see trouble or they're going to be difficult because of x y and z or that's going to be tough because of abc um so i think that's you see, to come in to come in on that point sorry to interrupt but that is a very important point so Every young person in care has a file on them. Unlike your, your son or daughter at home, if you're, if you're a parent listening to this or a grandparent, or you're a child yourself, you don't have a file wrote on you. You probably have a national insurance number and an NHS number, that's it, right? No big file, you have your medical file, your dental file, whatever, right? A child in care, and this is the fact, they have everything of their life wrote down in documents that social workers, teachers, and all the professionals work with them can read before they even meet the young person like myself and then judge them because of things they've gone through that has nothing to do with how they are as a person. It's because of what they have gone through subject to their parents or grandparents or guardians at the time. So this young person is being victimized in a way because of things they weren't in control of. So when a, when a teacher reads their file, they're making a prejudgment. When a social worker reads their file, they're making a judgment on how they want to see that young person and how they believe that that young person is going to be or grow up to be. So they already have this perception in their mind before they've even met the young person. So then when the young person walks into that room or walks into that classroom or goes to meet their social worker for the first time, their social worker's got an opinion, but that child doesn't. They don't know this person from Adam, for example. They know nothing about them. And that's already an un unfair advantage in the sense of they can just think that child's going to be troubled. That child's not going to get anywhere. They have no determination, no drive, no passion, no heart, no real want for stability or love within a family household. You know, even foster carers, for example, they get to read the files before they meet young people, right? So they've already made a judgment on whether that child is going to fit into their family. And the other thing that people don't really know is that foster carers, for example, or carers get to choose which child they take on, right? So then that child who doesn't get chosen 
or is always feeling like they're rejected, then feels another sense of direct rejection. And that, that comes from perception. That comes from opinionation from a file. So that young person is, and I was one of those, you know, and that made me feel so degraded and so disposable, which is something that children in care feel all the time, that they're disposable, replaceable, not wanted. And this is where the system really needs to change. We should stop letting people read the files. They should just be a sheet of what they need to know, basic trigger points, <clears throat> which is something I know me and Rebecca always talk about after we edit a podcast or something is the trigger points that maybe we need to edit out or we need to ask a person if they're okay with that to be in because people can change their minds right and a young person should have that kind of decision that they can make on what they want people to know about them there is some necessities you know that they must know whether their family's a danger to them whether they've got substance misuse in the past because that's going to help them I understand that but making a perception on their whole life, which they barely had control on as a child, is so degrading. And then people picking and choosing whether they want that child, like that young person, not that child, because they're not just a child, they're a person, they're an individual. They have, they need a sense of belonging, right? Yeah, and, and that why always come Sorry. up a lot. And it just makes me think, it just makes me think of the fact, um, I don't know, that, a lot, a lot of what is in the, well, I'll start with the first statement that is basically um, people, no child has chosen to go into care. Um, and that's something that I know Dave Linton said on his episode, but it comes up a lot in many different ways. So the one thing you can always be sure of is that this isn't something that they've done or a choice that they've made that have ended up in that situation. And, and there is always gonna be some level of trauma of varying degrees that, that lead to the care situation happening in the first place. Um, so I, and a lot of children, I don't tell me if I'm speaking out of turn, but a lot of children are ashamed of the reason that they've ended up in this situation. It carries with it a huge weight of shame. It's like a fa somebody reading certain elements of any, any child's file is like you reading their most deepest, darkest secrets, the thing that they're trying to hide from the world most and you knowing that is just just feels like like the like as the child you just feel like you're under a microscope of everybody knowing your business you see, like Jeremy Kyle that is a perfect way of summing it up okay let's go to Jeremy Kyle for example people watch that because they want to know people's life stories right they have a choice to go on a show like that now imagine you're a young person who doesn't have a choice in what people read or know about you because it's just on the file where anyone who works with you professionally can access it to a limitation. Imagine how that would make you feel if you're at home now and you're a parent, a grandparent, a young person listening to this who doesn't have that. Imagine everything that you've gone through in your life that you try and hide from your friends or your family in certain situations. Then being able to read it, just imagine that. And that is such a horrible feeling. I know now as a care lever that with friends or people in my life that I've hid certain things for a, for a very long time because I'm ashamed of it and disgusted in it and feel like, and a lot of young people in care then begin to blame themselves for things that have happened. And that, that that's just a, di that's a detachment in the way the system makes them feel. And 
so all that shame and you're right it is shame it is almost it's degrading so for a young person to feel like that but not even be able to I don't know have the privacy of knowing that only people they want to know like want to read it can read it that's just taking away any sense of liberty in a way it is a liberty that is taking away their freedom of choice and that's something we fry for in today's world is freedom of choice and giving someone a choice now these young people don't have a choice about what is wrote about them and do you know what the other funny thing about files for example is that they can't access them until they're 18 they're not allowed to read them until they're 18 so everything that's wrote about them, they don't even know half of it. Well, that's part of what I was going to ask next, which is basically what, what happens next, um, which I'll do a bit of detail on. But um, I think the file is an interesting example because when you can, if you choose to request your file at any point after 18, what support are you given when, when, you, when you get to read it? Is it just sent in the post and you get to go through your whole life story and things that you perhaps want to forget um but, so that's part of what happens next as a care leaver if you so choose but also um the other part of the what's happened next what happens next question is once once you've spent your whole childhood in going through the initial trauma of ending up in that situation to begin with the continued trauma of the stigma um, that follows you around from placement to placement to placement from school to school to school and then the lack of education that comes with that, what, what opportunity is next? What happens next? Is, is all of this clubbing together, does it then become a surprise that there's a higher rate of runaways or there's a higher rate of homelessness or a higher rate of offending? Um, you know, what happens after? You see, let's just touch on the files, for example. So. I've always thought about accessing my own files, for example, but I almost feel like I know enough about my own life, to be fair. Um, I don't want to read what someone else has wrote about me because they don't know how it feels personally as that person who's been through that trauma, that person who's been moved from pillar to post and made feel disposable and all of that. But I do know a couple of people who have read their files, for example. They put in the application, they receive their files on a memory stick, and they're just left to read them. Memory stick. And the trauma of that is horrendous. And that's why I've chosen personally not to do it. For some people, they sit there and they go, I can't read anymore. I'm done with it. Like, it's too much. These people don't understand me. They don't understand the trauma. It's just their perception. But then you get some people that go, oh, it's quite therapeutic. But I have never heard that very often. I'd say, I would say very minimal I've met two people I guess out of so I've met two people in my life out of the hundreds of people in care that I know that have read who have said it's beneficial two people and there's been multiple others that have accessed it and gone these people do not get me it's a judgment, it's a stigma, it's a perception. They don't understand what it's like to get this trauma. And don't get me wrong, there are people who go to work in this system because they really want to make a change and they've gone for it themselves. But sometimes they also then become a bit too consumed about how they think the young person feels or why they're acting that way because they've been in that situation. 
which is a juxtaposition. You know, there's always juxtapositions to this. Um, and then moving on to the second question about what happens after. We look at the homeless rates, for example, right? 24% of those who, 25% of those who are homeless are, have experienced care, right? Have been in the care system. 24% of those currently in youth offending have been in care, right? We look at education. So many of, right, 39% of 19 to 21 year olds who are unemployed aren't, who are, who have been in the care system are unemployed and not in education, right? And the reason for it is, is these systemic failures. How can somebody who doesn't get the correct education, is moved around all the time, then go and get a job because an employer is like, you've got no grades. You're not good enough for this. We don't want to give you that opportunity. So then how can they get adequate housing? Because when they go to get housing, they're on a wait in this race ages and chucked in a hostel full of drug, drugs and alcohol and nasty accommodation, right? Where then eventually they end up sometimes getting hooked onto those drugs because they've got nowhere else to go. They've got no sense of belonging, no sense of purpose because no one will give them a chance. And then people wonder why 25% of those who have been in care, like homeless people are, have been in care because it's so bleak. Like if, and a lot of the time, when you leave care, you're left with no support apart from a PA. And you're lucky if you get a good one, right? It's potluck. It's a postcode lottery. And some people are kicked out of care at the age of 16. It's not 18 all the time, you know? And even at 16, some people have moved into hostels, right? So just let me put this into your, like, as a personal ex example for me. At 16, I was moved into hostels, okay? And by the time I turned 18, I'd used up all the hostels that I could be in, right, in my local area. So if I didn't find somewhere to live, work my bum off from 17 up to 18 to have enough for a deposit in rent, I would have been on the streets. I could have, and I'm not going to, I'm not saying this in any bad way to anyone who is on the streets because it's not their fault. And that's what I want to highlight. It is not their fault. It's the system's fault. It's the government's fault. It's the council's fault, right? I could have fallen into that crack. But I was not just resilient enough, I guess, because that's the wrong word, because they all have resilience. All young people who've been in care have resilience. But I was lucky enough that I had the opportunity where an employer said, we'll give you a shot, right? Not many young people in care get that if they don't have the education because they're moved around me from pillar to post in school and all of that. And the other thing, let's bear this in mind. So the other thing about young people in care is that the increase for those going into care is actually mainly from 16 plus. So from the age of 16, right? So you're looking at the prime time of their education, exam time, okay? So then going into care is very traumatic in itself. Everything changes. So then what we've got to take into our brains, and this is something I want the care review to take into perspective, is giving young people who are in care allowance on their GCSEs. Because there is no way if you're getting taken into care at the age of 15, 14 upwards that you are going to be able to focus on your exams because you've obviously got a lot of trauma to be going into care in the first place. You've got things happening that have affected your life that is not in your control that the people who were looking after you are to blame for. System for those in care because it's obviously not working. 
No, it's not working, clearly. And there's... It broke up a slight bit there, but... And there's, and there's evidential failures, you know, and the one thing that strikes me is that in the last 10 years, there's been a 36% increase in children in need from 16 plus, a 39% increase of children going into care from 16 plus. That's the highest increase in any age group, other than 11, 11% increase from zero to one year olds, right? And the thing is with zero and one year olds, with no disrespect to them at all, is that they have a better, they have a better future nine times out of 10 because they get adopted. Because who wants to, people want to adopt a baby. There's, there's flaws in that as well. We had Debbie Bright on in series one who talks about the foster to adopt policy and the flaws in that and how that has massive effects. But just touching on this and the increase and decrease in young people going into care and what ages, that is the most affected age group, 15 upwards, 16 upwards. We're looking at a massive fundamental systemic failure of the education system local authorities to put in education provisions, which then has a massive effect on your whole life. I'm not because saying- if you can't get, sorry. I'm not, I'm not saying you're gonna know the answer to this, but I would be interested to know why there's such an in increase at that, at that age range. Um, and, and, and sometimes what's, what is the correlation? Um, because sometimes if you don't get taken into care until you're 15, have you experienced 15 years of abuse? Till that point is it because of the of the funding cuts that that's happened because obviously social services can be involved without taking you into care they can be keeping a close eye on you um oh definitely and i know this from personal circumstance so i'm just going to go off my personal opinion here i'm not saying it's the way the government runs or local authorities run but from about the age six seven years old we had social services involved and without going into too much detail, there was a lot of abuse and trauma that happened within that time frame. And early intervention is a massive failure. It doesn't work because the whole idea of early intervention is keeping the family together, making sure things work, right? And then we look at early intervention. For those who don't know what it is, it's where you have social workers involved. It's about trying to help parents and the young, the children get a better family unit and things like that and try and sort out some of the issues whether it's neglect or trauma or ill health or financial issues and poverty and there's so many things that could play into it okay but it doesn't work for from the age I was seven up until 12 13 before they took me into care that was an additional five years later and, and that comes to funding it comes to provisions with foster carers and placements and all of that, and that's the systemic failure again. We always talk about systemic failure, and there is just one failure after another. So for those, you know, 15, 16 year olds, when I was taken into care, my brothers, my older brothers and sisters were actually in that category of age, 15 upwards, okay? So there was no, in the nicest possible way, and I'm, and I, this is not derogative to anyone in care because I'm, I'm one myself, but at that age, there is no kind of helping them because they're so fixated on fight or flight mode. They've got to do what they can to survive because of what they've been through. And for those who don't understand that, it's the simplest way of putting it is when you're in a traumatic situation for so long, your body then becomes used to, I've got to do this or I've got to do that. And then at the age of 15, 16, you're, you've got all these things going on in your mind. You, 
at the age of 15, 16, you tend to be in a social group, which nine times out of 10 in those situations aren't good for you. And then you get stuck in that bubble. And because at 15, 16, the system's like, oh, well, we don't really want to help you. We don't want to waste too much time on you. We don't want to waste too much money on you because you'll be gone in two, three years time and you'll be our care lever. Let's not bother, you know? And that's a lot of the problem. And I think this is why when I talk about the care of you this year, there needs to be a lot of questions answered. Early intervention needs to be questioned. Education provisions need to be questioned. Funding needs to be questioned. We look at funding, I keep going on about funding, but this is really interesting, okay? So we, if you separate the funding, for example, 2012 to 2013, 10.1 10 billion was spent, 6.6, Okay, and then we go to 2019, 2020. There was only a four million rise, kind of four Sorry, million Joel, rise. It, and broke only, up, it broke up again. So go back to six point six. That's where it broke up. Six point six billion um, statutory spending in 2012, 2013. Three point five billion non-statutory spending, and then we go to 2019 to 2020, and it's ten point five billion spending in total. Right, so that's like four hundred million. Right. And 8.2 of it is statutory spending. Non-statutory is 2.3 billion. Now, if we look at that, okay, what's actually happened, the funding hasn't increased really. What the government have done is try to cover up their tracks. They're like, oh, we've increased the statutory spending, but what you don't know is we're decreasing the non-statutory spending. So what's happening is the funding isn't increasing, right? They're just trying to make it look like it is. So they're trying to make it look like, okay, so we've increased the statutory spending by 1.6 billion from 2013 to 2019, right? But you've decreased the non-statutory spending by 1.2 billion, okay? So actually what you're doing is just leveling it out so it looks like you've invested more, but you really haven't because you're, and that's the tip for tap that always happens with this system. They take money away to put in other areas and forget young people in care. There's 8,080 young people in care, 80,080 individuals that could offer so much to our country that to their own lives, right? Drive, determination, passion, places to go. And we're forgetting them. We're failing them. We're letting them down. And this is the government. This is the care of you. Josh McAllister, you have questions that need to be answered, right? The case for change review, I just want to touch on this quickly while we're on this, right? Didn't even interview 1% of those that are actually involved with the care system, live in the care system or work for it. So tell me that's an accurate enough voice because it's not. And Josh McAllister, you need to answer that one directly because this is not anyone else's fault. You're in charge of it. You're the head of it. You could have spoke to more voices and you chose not to. And that's not an accurate reflection then. That's just a reflection of a small minority of an already minority. And it's shameful, it's disgraceful. What's your opinion on this being, how this has been enabled? Um, I think that you've touched on already and we certainly have in previous episodes talked about how it's a very unseen problem, how, how children anyway, any child, not just uh, one in care, um, are voiceless anyway they lack credibility anyway because they're kids um and then 
the voice is just squashed and squashed and squashed even more as it's. Can you just repeat that because it's cut out and frozen a lot? Yeah. I'll start again. Hello? Um, am I here? Sorry. That's okay. You, you don't have to be sorry. Oh, you're frozen. I'll wait. I'll wait. Okay, so I just wanted to ask about what you think has enabled that. Um, so I think that children are quite voiceless anyway, not just care experienced children. Children don't have much credibility, they're kids. Um, and then it's an unseen problem, like we've talked about in previous podcasts. Nobody actually sees the care system like you might see homelessness um, or, you know, um, convicts or, you know, there's lots of other causes that are seen and the care system isn't seen in the same way and children don't have a voice and then growing up without that voice means that it's harder to speak out now which is what what you're doing um but it's not that easy to do that and be heard um so it, do you think anything can be done to make this problem more visible so that more voices can be heard so that more changes can be made you see, the first thing I want to touch on is we always created this podcast to give the voiceless a voice. And that is the truth. And this is why I active, this is why I'm an activist for children in care, because they are always silenced. They're always seen as they know nothing, that they know nothing about the system, that the people at the top know everything about the system. I had a meeting with um, a service, well, a manager of the care system around my area. And he turned and said to me, the only thing we give young people is resilience, right? Didn't want to listen to anything else I really had to say because that was the key message. Now, the problem is, is the hierarchy. That's what enables young people to be voiceless. Government, Josh McAllister in this example, local authorities, head of services in local authorities. Then it goes down to the social workers and all of that. And it just leaves at the bottom is the young people right? And they should really be the top because they're the ones living it. They're the experts. I don't care what university degree you have on children in care, how much professional um, experience you have of working with young people in care. But the one thing you don't have is living in the care system currently, right? The care system's always evolving. The challenges are always evolving. So that's why young people are voiceless because even when they bring things up, they get shut down. Oh, it costs too much. Oh, we can't do that because it's enshrined in law. I went to the same person that I just currently spoke about by saying they have resilience about language. Why are we calling young people's homes a placement? Right? Why are we saying when they have a couple of days away from their foster care's respite, it makes them seem like a problem? His answer was it's enshrined in law, it's money, it's resource. So when young people try and speak up, they get shut down. And the only thing we can do about changing that is holding people accountable. And in this episode, I'm holding the government and Josh McAllister accountable. What they do next is vital to the future of the next generation of those in care and the current generation. And if we don't implement change now, nothing's ever going to change. Local authorities hold a massive responsibility in giving their young people a voice whether that's through children in care councils or involving them in their new policies or listening to them, because then the only other option for them is to go and write a book on their, their story or their, or their situation or to 
write poetry. I know Coran did an amazing um, spoken word performance recently where one of the phrases stuck out to me is care leader to care leader, which is perfect. That's what we are, you know? And so many beautiful pieces were wrote and performed and, you know, people turned up to that show in London at the Arcola Theatre. And that's something we'll touch on later on in this series and get some of those young performers on and care leavers to care leaders because they are care leaders on. But that's the only way they feel like they have a voice because they don't feel like they can go anywhere else. They feel like they get shut down by the professionals. I have been so many times felt frustrated and isolated and powerless in things that I see happening that I want to change. Let's go back to Dave Linton, for example, right? Children are moved with bin bags in care, not luggage bags, not suitcases. They're given bin bags. They already feel disposable. And then you're giving them disposable waste bags. Come on. <laughs> what kind of system is that? How is that to make a, make a young person feel? Like rubbish. Like they deserve to be in a black bin and carried off in a bloody bin wagon. Right? Yeah. Dave Linton has come up, he's a social, it's a social enterprise called Mad Lug. Make a difference luggage. So every bag you buy, one gets donated to a child. Prevent the They've already sold 30,000. And we need to get to that 80,000 so that every child in care at the moment has a bag that they can move with and not one that will rip or break and their stuff gets smashed. Because that just makes them feel like rubbish. And I've been in that situation. And so many others have for years, for decades, for centuries. This isn't one problem that's been going on for a year or two. This has been going on for centuries. And we need to fix this because that is our duty and the government's duty. So Jules, for any other care experienced young person out there um, that is struggling to find their voice, struggling to say, have the confidence to use it through no fault of their own, um, through everything we've just talked about, um, how do you turn it around? How, do, how did you turn it around to get to this point where you can speak about it and fight for it? You see, personally, I found a lot of frustration and it's about changing the frustration and anger. So you, so you can take it in a negative way and go down the wrong road. And I can understand why so many do. It's so easy and it's not their fault because they've not known anything otherwise. No one's given them the time to learn anything otherwise. But do you know what? Let me tell you something. Don't ever feel like you can't achieve anything because you can achieve everything and anything. Because you may feel silenced and people might say, oh, we can't do that. Stand your ground, but don't be aggressive. Be persuasive, be kind and go in soft, but make sure you make your argument. And you know what? If then you feel like you really can't get anything out, then come on Foundling Founds because we will get your message out there because that's what we're here for. And do you know what? You can get your message out there in any way, shape or form. Social media. You can write an article, send it to a newspaper, right? You're not just stuck to one, one you're not just stuck to your local authority. You can make a change in so many different ways. And we have that power. It's about believing in yourself, believing your voice is enough. 
because no one can take that away from you. Don't let people silence you. You've been silenced enough throughout your life, all that time in care. And now it's your time to stand up and be a leader of your own life. Don't let anybody else tell you how to live it or write your story for you. Write your own story now. Because that's, import that's the importance. You are important. You are an individual. You have determination. You have drive. You have passion. Don't let anyone put you into a category or make you feel silenced or quiet or that you're irrelevant because you're far from it. Do everything in your power that you have to believe in yourself because you are courageous young people. You've got through a system that lets you down constantly. And if you can do that, you can do anything. Oh, yes. I'm so here for that. Um, so what is the result of all of this, all of these systemic problems? Like what happens so, in the future? So just to, as we've already discussed, some of the issues around homelessness and unemployment and things like that, for example, I just want to chuck out a really shocking statistic that really might open up people's eyes to the challenges and societal challenges that people in care face throughout their adulthood. So, so That is a shocking statistic. It, it cut out again. In so many ways. It, it cut let's, out. Let's try that again. Yeah, it, it, you got throughout their adulthood and then it just cut out. God. So 70% of those in care throughout their adulthood will die prematurely. What a shocking statistic. And that is down to the systemic failures in support within their early childhood. And we need to stand up and really make a, make a noise about this because the only way it's going to change is if the government listen. Now, there is a commitment made by the government at the beginning of this care review not to add any additional funding. Excuse me? You need to add additional funding. Josh McAllister, as the chair of the care review, you need to champion more funding, additional funding that is going to improve the lives of those in care, but also improve the support networks around them for foster carers, for carers, for youth engagement workers, social workers. And what about we need to improve. Care? What about life after care? What's missing then? Um... Fund, you know, missing after care. So let, let's take step by step. Accommodation, we've already discussed how they go into hostels, they get put on council waiting lists and all of that. But let's talk about the actual support. They get given a personal advisor up until they're 21. In extreme circumstances, if you have stuff going on up until you're 25. But once you're 21, once you've been torn away from your family, your support networks, been moved from pillar to post, got no education, probably not got a job, not got somewhere stable to live, you then lose your only, only support left, right? So then what does that leave you with? Nothing. Nothing. As someone who's approaching the age of 21, I can honestly say that I'm lucky because I have a good support network. But before a couple of months ago, I didn't. 
and I was petrified of the realities because there are also shocking statistics around those who take their own life through mental health issues that have been in care. Those who take their lives through drug and alcohol abuse because they've been in care. Those who are involved in crime and end up losing their life. Let's also go on to another statistic, right? That I, I've just got to find with me one second that I think it's, it's important for people to know that 60% of those who've been involved with social services, right? And this is to do with gang related violence, end up with serious knife wounds, right? 60%, and this is in the case for change, right? Review. Now, why aren't we doing that if you know the answer to that? Why isn't the government and local authority actively making a change? I'll tell you what it is. They're lazy. They can't be bothered. They see us as a minority. They see us as worthless. And I'll tell you something, we're far from all of that. We're individuals. As much as an individual as your child, if you're a parent or a grandparent at home, or you're a child yourself listening to this. And I know some of the stuff I'm saying is, you know, very direct, but it needs to be said directly so that people really understand the impact that this system has on people's lives forever. It's not just for the years you're in care. It's not just for the three or four years after care. It's for your life. Because the most important years of your development are from naught to five. And then those years that you grow up until the age of 18 is where you learn a lot of your behaviors and how you learn a lot about how you feel about yourself. Now, if a system is letting you down, making you not trust people, making you feel disposable, making you feel like you're not worth anything, then what are you going to carry through for the rest of your life unless you have people around you to fight that challenge, to fight that stigma, to fight that perception? You're not going to. So it's about time we make a change. And the changes are, you know, some of them are blaringly obvious. Funding, education, accommodation, giving a child a loving, caring home, somewhere I, that they can call home. Can I ask about um, the mental health support? Because one thing that's glaringly obvious that needs to change um, like just just as a layman from the outside looking in that if if a child goes through all of this the trauma of ending up in the system or under social services to begin with plus the trauma of actually being in the system and everything that you've just spoken about that that is clearly going to need some extra mental health support for anyone um and you said that the only support you get after 18 um just until you're 21 is is a personal advisor so um is is mental health support readily available and easily accessible to care leavers and how no. often does it go on for for example every time i i personally have needed mental health support it's taken upwards of six months to get it in place and then even then it's inadequate it's inadequate because the, they they almost don't know how to deal with the trauma that comes from living such a traumatic childhood and kind of leading into your adulthood. So then when you're let down by mental health services, and again, you know, it comes down to funding, it comes down to there's a wide range of people with mental health issues, but there should be a statutory 
requirement that those who have been in care are fast tracked because they have a lot of trauma from a very young age, which if it's not resolved sooner rather than later, is gonna have implications on the rest of their lives. And from my own experience, I can honestly say it affects you for life if you don't get it sorted. I'm only 20, going on 21, and you might sit there and say, oh, you're a 20 year old, but I can say every day can be a struggle, you know, mentally, and it, then it has physical effects. And that's where the problem lies, is we need to make change. We need to create adequate mental health services for those that are in care. And that requires a statutory fast tracking. A stat, there should also be statutory, you know, it should also be statutory that those in care can receive mental health support whenever they need to. A massive failure is also the fact that when you leave care, a lot of the time your PA works eight till five. In the evenings, if you're alone, you've got nobody. We all know that sometimes the evenings are the loneliest time. There's no lines in place. There's no telephone lines in place apart from mine and things like that, but they are not trauma specified. So we need to now think about what we can put in place for care leaders, prevent loneliness, prevent isolation. And these are things that we need to talk about. COVID-19 is a perfect example, something we've all struggled with over the last year. But let me put you in the shoes of someone who at the time at the beginning of COVID was in a lockdown, had no emotional support, had no intense support from any other service that was sat there every day in lockdown, every night, consumed by their trauma, consumed by their past. And that is very degrading. It eats away at you and it causes you massive mental health complications. And I'll be pretty open about this led me down a very difficult path with my mental health, which has been a challenge in a year to turn around. A very, a very huge challenge. And it's now time that we are compassionate and empathetic towards all care leavers and care experienced young people. And that comes to community as well. The community need to stop seeing young people in care as this perception as troubled or that, they, that they're not gonna get anywhere or excuse my terminology, but they're scum off the earth because that's sometimes how we're seen by a majority. And that needs to change because if you don't change community perceptions, then those young people are always gonna feel isolated wherever they go. Yeah. And I know, I know it's not as simple as how I'm about to put it, but I'm just thinking that for any listeners out there that are, are care experienced young people that are feeling isolated and lonely and struggling with their mental health. If, if you yourself um, implemented things into your, the daily running of your own life that you, you maybe had to do on your own. Um, if you're saying, you know, the lack of support that's there, is there any tips or that you could give them for things that they might be able to do to help them feel less alone or to help focus their mind or, um, just feel more occupied in that time? Definitely, there's so many things you can do to fill your time. One, one thing I find is very useful is using your mind creatively. So if you're, especially with mental health, Rebecca, you told me this, <laughs> creativity is key, um, but it is really important. With, you know, with mental health, it's about stimulating your mind and not giving yourself time to overthink. And if you can stimulate your mind through things that you enjoy, whether it's art, whether it's writing, whether it's podcast, whether it's recording a song, whether it's cooking, whether it's cleaning, whatever it is, do it. Because 
That's the, and you also, I know this might sound blatantly obvious, but get out of bed, put a routine in place. It's so good for your mental health to have stability. And once you have a, a structure of stability, you'll feel more fulfilled. And once you've done that, if you feel isolated within your community, trust me, go online and speak to other care leaders because they will relate with you more so. And you'll build those relationships. There's some amazing charities out there that can get you in touch with a group of care leavers. You can become a part of a care leaver group or a care, care, um, child in care group, you know. But if you don't want to do that and you want to feel like you've got a place where you can go where you feel a bit normal and you don't have to talk about that and excuse the term terminology normal because nobody's normal. We're all far from normal. There's no normal in life. Let me just point that out there as well. But you can definitely go out and make friends, you know, get involved in things you like and make sure, like I just said, your mind is preoccupied because the more you sit there and simmer on your trauma, the worse it gets the more you feel isolated. And I understand that it can be a struggle because you've moved from pillar to post. So maybe your social skills, you know, you struggle with that. And I was one of those, very introverted. Another thing I can relate with, but you have to sometimes push your boundaries. And it's about development. It's about taking one thing at a time. And I'm gonna share a personal thing with you. Last year, I didn't think I could develop. And this year, I, I said to myself at New Year's, I'm going to develop this year. Whether it was going out, which I never did, meeting new people, making a podcast so that we could create a difference. I did that step by step. It isn't a fast process. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of courage. But you can do it. You've got through a lot in life already. And trust me, you can achieve anything. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. And Rebecca, you'll back me up on this. You're a youth engagement worker. You've worked with so many young people. You've seen the way you can extract the best out of young people. And, you know, we're all worth it. No matter your background, no matter what you've come from, what you've got, you're worth it. Yeah, I think it's just about making yourself believe that you're worth it because through no fault of your own you that's sometimes really squashed down um and finding what it is that you like doing and then and then developing on on that um the other thing i will just quickly say is i think it might be helpful if in the bio for this episode we can signpost um online resources for people to get to know other care leavers maybe some mental health helplines um and other care leave, like what we do, what we've been working on, care leaver groups, um, so that people can get involved if they want to, so that they, you know, they can pick and choose from that. Um, Definitely. And I was also really like to say, anybody who's listening to this, Foundling Founds has, has its own social media. I also have mine, which is very much interlinked. And if you ever feel like you're alone, send me a message and we will, we, we will, we will try our best in whatever way we can to, you know, signpost in the right direction, listen to you and validate the way you feel. Yeah. And sometimes it's that validation that helps because in a world where you may not know many care leavers, you feel like there's not much validation, but anything you feel is okay. 
And I know this is again, really a really simplistic way of seeing it, but sometimes it can be as simple as somebody saying, yeah, you can do that. You coming up with an idea of how you wanna change things about or what you wanna do with your life to progress your own individual life. And finally someone saying, yeah, that's absolutely possible rather than um, going down a list of why nots. Yeah, definitely. And that is very important that you don't look at the, the negatives and things like that. Just always look at what you can achieve. Look at what is out there. Look at the best is, it's a very negative situation you've lived. I'm not gonna never, never hide away from that, but just remember you can achieve anything you want to. And the way to have a positive mind is by making sure that you realize that you're an individual and you're not what the system says you are. You're not what people around the system say you are. You are you. I think it's really useful to think. Um, I, I think it will be really useful for people to hear as well that um, that it's a journey to get to this point. You've described your own personal journey that you didn't just wake up able to talk about these things, able to develop, able to do your own podcast and all all the other things that you achieve. Um, It was a a process, but also you've started there and you've made it happen so that it is possible. Do you know what? I've also had setbacks along the way and I've also taken time out along the way and that's okay. Yeah. It's not all plain sailing. Recently, I've had things go on that I've had to take a step back from certain things and that's okay. It's not a failure, it's just part of your development. And it's about taking each step at a time. Nothing happens overnight, you know? Every little step is a part of that development, whether it's getting up and making a cup of tea or having a shower some days, or whether it's going out and having the time of your life with your friends or doing something you enjoy, which is a big thing. That's development. We always say some days it's just one foot in front of the other. If you can just get your one foot in front of the other foot. Exactly. Every day, that's fine. And other days you can take on the world. Exactly. Um, and it's just about le- learning one from the other, not forcing yourself when you don't feel like it. But also, like we said, finding what, what makes you happy or, or even just makes you tick, makes you want to, motivates you inspires you what you want to change and how you want to go about it like like you're saying about people being individuals that's going to be different for everybody and everybody's going to have their own journey but like they they the message is you can do it whatever that is you can absolutely achieve it which absolutely brings me to what you always end every podcast on which is got to be short if you could say anything to somebody in care right now what would it be Remember your individuality. Remember you have a purpose. Remember your own determination, drive and passion. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Woo! And finally, is there anybody that you would like to specifically invite on to the podcast? I definitely think there are a few people who need to answer my questions and the questions of many care leavers and care experienced young people. And care experienced people throughout the years. Josh McAllister, the children's minister, the children's commissioner, 
And they are a list of people I'd really like to come on because they have questions to answer and they need answering. Perfect. thank you so much to Jules for sharing so many incredible insights he will be back in the host seat for the next episode talking to broadcaster and journalist Ashley John Baptiste to play us out today here's Jules with his amazing poem What's in a Name Who are you to forget their name in fact are they solely to blame a number with little consideration and chosen with no deliberation they couldn't use their voice, not that they even had a choice. Some may only come with rights, but then we're still moving them on with shopping bags. So many of them live in fear while others enjoy much cheer as their minds pay their fees. Can you see them as individuals, please? Who are you to forget their name? Somewhere to call home is the aim. Foundlings were left with a token and many identities are still being broken. More children arrive every day. Kids are still in care today. They feel unseen, just as if they're behind the scenes. A fear of rejection, a sense of no direction, trapped within a dome. All they ask for is a home. Who are you to forget their name? As if you think they're all the same. Therefore, you can't give them little care with all their potential to share. Building a house with their self-esteem, they begin to thrive within a dream. As they begin their conversation, let's all remember their determination. At times they will rebel, but remember it's their story to tell. And just remember they have names and not a single child is to blame.